Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, uh, I'm here over Zoom. Uh, the coronavirus is killing me with my in-person interviews, so I'm here over Zoom uh, with Ethan Bensdorf, the second trumpet with the New York Philharmonic. Um, he has graciously agreed to give me some of his time, and uh, this is an interview I've wanted to do for a while for uh, a myriad of reasons that we will get into throughout the interview, but the first and foremost is I had the opportunity to actually finally meet him in uh, Chicago last summer. Um, I had heard all about him through the, the legends that, uh, of Northwestern and stuff, but to actually get to meet him was awesome. He's very, just a nice guy, wonderful player and stuff like that. So I thought, you know what, this is maybe a connection I can uh, have and he has agreed. So now we are here. Ethan, thank you for being willing to do this. Thanks for having me. I thought we would start, a good place to start would just be to um, talk about your young life as a, as a brass player, uh, if there's any interesting stories about how you got started, or maybe not interesting stories, and it just looks like everybody else's, the beginning of their life, whatever that looks like, to kind of dig into that, and we'll just follow your path uh, to the New York Phil. Sure. So, um, I grew up uh, outside of Chicago, actually in the town of Evanston, which is where Northwestern is, where we went to school. Um, mm -hmm. And my family is, is, was fairly musical. My, my mother was in musical theater and my sister, who's older than I am, uh, is an oboe player. And so some of my earliest musical memories are of her making reeds and squawking on, on the reeds. There's nothing quite like beginning oboe sounds walking yeah, through the house. <laughs> um, but uh, Starting from almost as young as I can remember, my, my sister started going to the Interlochen Arts Camp up in northern Michigan. And my mom had gone there for, I think, four summers. And then my sister went there for five summers. And I was so excited to put on the uniform even before I was a camper when I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. And we would go visit my sister and pretend like I was part of the Interlochen family. And so the first summer that I actually went as a camper, I was 10 years old. Mm. Um, and that was before I had started the trumpet. So uh, the f I, I believe that was the f summer before I started fifth grade, which is uh, when the band program started in my school. And so I had to decide what instrument I was going to play anyway. And I had been taking a little bit of piano lessons before this. So I had some sort of introduction, I guess. And that summer at Interlochen, I, I, I think I took piano lessons. I took a theater class. I sang in the choir. I took some art classes. I mean, that's the wow. great thing about Interlochen is like it's, it's got it all. It has, yeah, yeah. has everything and, and you can sort of pick and choose what you want to do. And so I also took this class called Instrument Exploration. And every day we tried a different instrument, you know, everything from the flute, piccolo, contrabassoon, double bass, cello, violin, all the different percussion instruments. And uh, we got to the trumpet and there was this immediate connection. Mm. And uh, 
I remember the teacher, the instructor who was there uh, said, oh, this is, you clearly have a natural gift for this. So the, the last week of the, of the class was a four week long session. And uh, the last week I, we got to choose one instrument to take with us back to our cabins to sort of mess around with. And I chose the trumpet and I took it back and I, I learned to play tequila on yeah. the trumpet and Good. we we like formed a little band and i remember playing that just over and over and over again um so that was my my first introduction to the trumpet and then i started in the fall uh with my middle school band after that interesting like i think that was a similar thing for me i started a violin in the fourth grade and then i switched to trumpet in fifth grade and uh, over to I the dark a, side. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have a daughter, though. She's 10, and she's been playing piano for two years, you know? So for brass playing, it feels like we start so we relatively super late, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Um, but to have some of that uh, art background being exposed to that at a high level, uh, I wonder if that made sort of a, not like a difference, because obviously you still had to practice, but sort of the exposure of like, this could be a full, like a full pursuit, not just like I play the trumpet because it's fun, but there's more to it than that. Yeah. Being exposed to that, that's kind of interesting. Um, so you went to school in, in Evanston all the way through and then Northwestern as an undergrad, right? That's right, yep. And so, um, I mean, we should just talk about it. You're, you were there when, like, everybody that was there when you were there is a superstar at this point, you know, and um, or a lot of them where I know that there's, you know, there's just a lot of names, a lot of big names from that time. So what was it like to be there for you? Was it motivating? Did you find that you were not near the top, but you were motivated and then everybody else was doing their thing? Or did you find yourself in the middle being motivated by everybody else? Kind of what was your relationship with the studio and the players and all that? It was incredibly inspiring and motivating. Um, my my introduction to sort of the, the trumpet studio came when uh, I was still in high school, actually. So I, because I lived in Evanston and, you know, Northwestern was sort of in my backyard, I had heard of these people, you know, Barbara Butler and Charlie Geyer, like there are these trumpet gurus who are just amazing. And so I, my the teacher that I studied with in high school, his name is Bruce Doherty. Mm -hmm. He was amazing. Did you have any interaction with him? At, at no, Northwest but David Cohen told me about. Okay, him yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave and I, same same teacher. So he he was great. Um, I we're still in touch. He's a he's a great trumpet player, a great guy. He did a lot for me, um, and he recommended that I seek out lessons if I could with, with Barbara Butler. And my first um, exposure with her was um, I, our youth orchestra uh, was playing Mahler five and I was playing the, the solo part. I think it was my, maybe my junior year of high school, which is mm. insane to me if I look back at that. Yeah. Um, and so I, that was like my excuse. I said, okay, I have this part and I want to take it to Barbara. So I, I called her up and you know, with her, you know, you have to be very persistent and I called her up and she graciously agreed to see me. And, and so we had a couple of lessons just on Mahler 5 and it was amazing. Um, so I was, when I was applying to schools, um, I, in the end, was deciding whether or not to stay in Evanston and go to Northwestern. Or ironically, I had an opportunity to go to Juilliard and study with Phil Smith. And it was a very difficult decision, obviously, but I ended up staying at at home, so to speak, and, wow. and going to Northwestern and studying with Barbara. But during that sort of 
decision period while I was trying to make the decision, um, Barbara had told me to reach out to, to the, the freshman class at the time. Um, and so I, I did, and that, that, that previous, was it? No, no, that was, that was right. So I, I reached out to them, um, and they took me out, um, to dinner. I think we went to Joy E's maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of those Evanston staples. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, they were, they were trying to convince me to, to come to Northwestern and like, you gotta come. And that was, that was great. I mean, it was, it was such a cool thing for these, you know, college kids to take out this high school kid, um, and treat me like I was already sort of one of, one of their own. Yeah. That's, I would say that's one of the sort of the best parts about being at Northwestern is the familial atmosphere and everybody's got each other's backs and we all want each other to succeed. I think it's one of the reasons the studios are so successful. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think um, Barbara and Charlie were, were great at not only picking the players, the best, some of the best players, but the players with the most potential and the players who were really team players also. And I think that was important to them in building a studio and um, having that, that atmosphere was, was part of the success, I think. When you were um, younger, so still not yet studying with them, did you find yourself already knowing that you wanted to play in an orchestra or did you figure that out through or did you feel like, I don't even know what I want and then this opportunity, you know, opportunities to audition for orchestras and you're like, let me try this out. That, what, like, what was your sort of your goal, I suppose, through that time? Um, so having an older sister who was doing it, um, she was playing in the local youth orchestra. Um, and I just was sort of exposed to that. And I remember my parents dragging me to see Chicago symphony concerts. And I remember hearing Bud Herseth live. Um, and, you know, when I was in, in, in high school, I played soccer pretty seriously. And so I, I remember sort of coming to a bit of a crossroads. I mean, I don't think I would ever make it as a professional soccer player, but um, I, I knew that at, at one point in high school, I had to sort of decide to go more serious with the, with the trumpet. And I think being exposed to, to the youth orchestra culture and, and interlocking certainly, I mean, I went back for seven summers after that first summer um, and was able to play with, all sorts of different people, but definitely, certainly people who were better than I was. And they definitely pushed me to, to get to the next level. I remember the, my first year in, in middle school band and that fifth grade year, I started at third chair <laughs> and I, I believe I moved up through that first year, uh, and, and, and was, was, became first chair. Same at Interlochen, that first summer, that second summer at Interlochen, the first time I was actually a, a trumpet major. Uh, I started at, at second chair. And then by the end of the summer, I was, I was first chair. I guess it's similar with soccer too. The, my freshman year, I started on the B team and then I worked my way up to start on the A team. I guess it's like my, my MO. <laughs> yeah. So is that from a competitive standpoint or a, I just want to be, get better and better. And then it happened to work out that way, or maybe some, some of both. I think it's it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, for me, it's important to be surrounded by people who are as serious or more serious, and and you know I I get a kick out of the challenge and the yeah, the competitive atmosphere, um, but also 
people above me who have maybe more natural talent or more drive that I can sort of feed off of. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to already sort of have that be an effect in like middle school, you know, it's, it's something that <laughs> I've never thought about it like that, but I guess, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's when I was, I remember when I was younger, I almost got kicked out of band cause I was just that kid in like, you know, fifth and sixth grade that was just blasting as loud as I could, you know, like yeah. for me, it was like, I don't even know what was going on. And, um, I would say, I wonder if, well, I mean, we'll get to it, but I wonder if this is just part of how your path, and your success just happened a little bit earlier than some other people's because you just had these experiences earlier than some of the rest of us did. Um, this could be, I, I, I'm not, I, it's, I'm trying to <laughs> craft a narrative, figure it out here. Um, <laughs> so at Northwestern, um, what do you feel like was your biggest, if you would have to say weakness or not your one biggest, but just what do you feel like was one of the biggest hurdles for you to overcome to become ready for this kind of, uh, to be competitive at this kind of level? Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're always working on our weaknesses. Um, I think it won't ever stop, unfortunately. Um, I don't know. I remember, um, well, I'll tell a story about my, my audition circuit in, uh, for the for college auditions, I remember never being a good sight reader, and transposing did not come easily to me. And so I will never forget my Curtis audition story, where I, I go into the audition, everything's going okay, um, and this was for Frank Catarabic, mm. and um, he all of a sudden stands up. He says, "Okay." Um, he puts a, a, one of the Arben melodies in front of me. He says, okay, play this in D. And I said, okay. And I had my B-flat trumpet in my hand, and I went to reach for my C trumpet. He said, no, no, on B-flat. I said, okay. And uh, so I, I, I look it over for a second, and I always take as much time as I possibly right. can. And, <laughs> and so he finally, like, eggs me. I said, okay, are you ready? Come on, let's go. So I, I started playing, and, like, in the first measure, I played a wrong note and he stops me and he goes, D, D major, D is in dog, D major. So, okay, thank you. Um, I will start over. <laughs> so I, I, I started again in the first measure, flawless. And after that, I couldn't put a sound through the um, instrument anymore. It was just, it was terrible. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, exposing my weaknesses two of them like that and also just like getting in my head and just freaking out did not help and so i just sort of fizzled out and he never really cut me off i just sort of stopped playing because i knew <laughs> it was terrible and so I, I once i stopped he said why do you want to go to curtis hmm. and i said well because of the great instruction and the, the wonderful school that is here and and he said well here at curtis we need people who can transpose wow. thank you <laughs> so, okay, thank you very much. So obviously I did not get into Curtis. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that was sort of uh, a wake up call to me to really work on sight reading, transposition, that kind of thing. Um, and it's those are things that you just have to do to yeah. get better at. Um, the more you do, the more comfortable it is. Um, and I remember working on that a lot at Northwestern. Um, and there was a period of time I remember where I could not for the life of me articulate cleanly at the top of the staff, especially F's at the top of the staff, um, E's, E flats, 
F sharps, G's sort of okay. But like right in that little tiny bubble, I, I was having a hard time. And I remember going to Barbara and she was just, she was telling me, this was like a wake up moment. She said, you're, you're thinking about them as high low notes rather than low high notes. I, I was like, oh, okay. And so I just like the way that my brain shifted helped me with, with that. Um, but there were all sorts of moments like that throughout, sure. throughout studying. Um, did you have any like, so that's like specific to playing. So did you have any sort of like mental or like emotional hurdles of like, Possibly, I mean, the, the obvious ones would be like belief in yourself, right? Like, I believe I can do it. Some people, like me, I had this blind faith that there's just no way I won't be successful, but it wasn't founded in any actual, like, knowledge of anything. I just, like, blindly believed, right? And then I think other people sort of, they get better and they get better and they start to see that it's possible. Um, did you have any hurdles like that to get over or did you sort of feel like it just was like a, a not a smooth path, but an, a, a clear path to that, this kind of lifestyle? I think I learned a lot from my time playing in civic. Um, that was sort of, uh, super lucky thing that happened to me, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, I, when I was, when I was at Northwestern, I was in civic my, during my sophomore and junior years, um, while at Northwestern, which was tough to balance. Um, and I'm sure I pissed off a lot of professors during that time. Um, <laughs> but sorry, everyone. Um, uh, Cliff Colnut was the conductor of civic at the time. And I, I learned a lot from him about how to play in an orchestra and what to do and what not to do. Um, and just staying humble and really not, trying not to compare myself to other people and just focusing on my own path. Everybody's on their own unique path. And I think that's also what was so great about going to Northwestern was not every one of us was on this like orchestral path. There was no like breeding ground for a specific type of playing. And there were so many different sounds, different strengths, different weaknesses, um, that we could all sort of learn from. And I think we all did a good job of, of staying humble and staying hungry um, to get better and to get to the next level. And we, we, we used each other in the best sense of the word um, in order to sort of achieve that along the way. I've heard some sort of some, I guess, legends of what we used each other to serve that. Do you have any examples of kinds of things that were going on during that time, but have you pushed each other? Um, <laughs> I've heard stories that like, yeah, what have you heard? I, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard stories that, um, like you'd be practicing and somebody would walk into a room and like, you'd have to pull like a note out of a hat or something like that. And then you'd have to play that note at that time or something like something close to that. Just like kind of like playing games with each other, but not from like, I want to mess with you, but we're going to challenge each other to be like ready at any time type thing. Yeah. I mean, for sure. There were, yeah, there were games like that and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and, and running Mahler five with no warm up, just playing. Um, and like, you know, running laps around the music building and then playing, you know, uh, song of the nightingale really quietly. <laughs> um, but That's I don't awesome. know. Yeah. I mean, there were always 
um, you know, Knights of Mancini quartets and first person to crack and now it has to drink. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that that happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I think it's an interesting, I think there's a perception of what it can or does look like when you have a group of people that become that successful. Everybody must have been like, just nonstop, like serious, like, you know, I, there's a story, a friend of mine came to Northwestern and it was my second year. I'll tell you a quick story. And he was like, oh, okay, this is Northwestern. It's super serious. Right. And then he was practicing and I had possibly imbibed earlier that day. And I was, and then I forgot we had a rehearsal for an excerpt class. So we went and we rehearsed for Ein Heldenleben. I was you guys rehearsed for excerpt class? Well, it was like the first one, right? So we were like, we got to do it right. And, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so um, I was a little under the weather, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and then I ran out into the hallway and I heard my friend practicing. And so I knocked on his door. I'm very drunk at this point. I knocked on his door and he opened it up. And I was like, give me your C trumpet. And he's like, what? Like, it's his first week at school. Like, give me your C trumpet. <laughs> And then he's like, okay. And he, ha I, he handed it to me and I tried to play Magnificat in the hallway on his sea trumpet. And it just was a disaster, right? And I think in that moment, he was like, what is, like, what is this place? Because it's not like what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think like, to dispel this sort of mythology that it's really, I think it's not that much different from what a lot of places are. Of course, like people are playing at a high level, but I think that camaraderie that you described is a big reason that um, their success is people are not actually locking themselves in a room and just practicing by themselves, but rather we're learning from each other and supporting each other. And that's a big part of the success, I think. Oh yeah. I remember if someone, if someone beat me to the practice room in the morning or something, I would feel so guilty. Um, if someone stayed later than me in the practice room, I would feel guilty. Uh, but in the end, I learned that quality is better than quantity. Yeah, I would like to sit here for a second because I've just I've been reading books about this and when we are reliant or not reliant but encouraged by our environment to succeed, what happens when you are removed from that environment? How do we continue to push ourselves and succeed at that level that we were when we are no longer in that environment? What's your experience with leaving Northwestern? Obviously, well, we can skip ahead. I know Naples, you were in Naples for a short time, but being in the New York Phil, of course, you're surrounded by incredible playing, but I'm imagining it's not the same as it was when you were in school, <laughs> probably. And so what's the, what, how does it differ? What is pushing yourself look like now as opposed to then where you're doing sort of like goofy games with each other to push? But you know what I mean? What's the difference? Like what's pushing yourself now in this environment? Well, I, what I will say before we get into that is, is the, the first few months that I was out of school, I think was the most productive I was. Um, I, so uh, right before graduation is when I won that audition in, uh, for Naples, for, for the Naples Philharmonic. So I, uh, my plan was after graduation to sort of take a year and just do the freelancing in Chicago. Um, and sort of take a year before I was going to think about grad school and see what was going to happen. Um, and then by chance, by luck, I, I got this job in Naples. And um, when I moved down there, um, I had a ton of time at the beginning of the season because the season doesn't really get going for the most part until a little bit later. They, they cater to the crowds that come 
uh, after the weather changes a little bit. So this, the beginning part of the season for me there was, was pretty light and I had a bunch of auditions coming up. And that was the first time that I was on my own without a teacher. Yeah. And that was sort of eye-opening for me because I didn't have someone to tell me what to do or to, or to reaffirm anything or to, to you know, tell me what to do or what not to do and what's working and what's not working. It was all up to me. And so I, I had a ton of time and I really sort of listened in a new way and became my own teacher in a way. And I think that was really important for me because I had this huge bank of knowledge that I had gained at Northwestern and before. And I was like, I had it stored up in me, but I wasn't really sure how to use it. And I had to really dig deep and open my ears in a new way to sort of figure out what was going to work for me and what was not going to work for me. Um, and I think that was a, a key period for me in my, my growth as a, especially taking auditions too. I think that was, that was big for me. Sorry. I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit. Sure. So I imagine you still feel like you're getting better at this, right? Teaching yourself like even today. So, but I, I, I totally agree. Actually, I totally agree. Like once you're out on your own, I've kind of realized how many questions I wished I would have asked. Right when I was there. Right. And so a lot of like what I'm doing right now with my life and my career is actually trying to like help people ask those questions and figure out that they know more than they think that they know and how to use that knowledge. What was your experience with, um, I'm sure it was difficult at first, but for me, it gets, once you sort of set things up and you try things out, like it starts to get a little bit easier. What was your experience with not necessarily a length of time, but just how long did it take for you to sort of hit possibly a stride where you're like, okay, this is the way that things work for me that, and I'm assuming you had to go through a bit of a period of trial and error to get there. Are you talking about auditions specifically? Well, just like teaching yourself. I mean, it could be auditions, but sort of teaching yourself to get to a stride of, I, I kind of have figured out how things work for me without somebody telling me, like, if we have to go through a period of trial and error, like, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a constant battle, I think. It's, it's a constant feeling of, of trial and error. Um, and, you know, what we do is, is so physical and every day can feel so different. Um, so what worked for me one day doesn't necessarily work for me the next day. Um, but in, in terms of auditions, there was a, a turning point for me where I, I attended a masterclass where the person giving the masterclass played for us a successful audition that he had taken. He had illegally recorded his audition, um, prelim, semifinal, and final. And it was for a big orchestra and a big position and one which this person was granted a trial for. So in, in a sense, he had basically won the audition mm -hmm. um, that day. And he played for us this all three rounds of his audition and it was so eye-opening to hear mistakes and he he didn't play perfectly but he still in effect won the audition and i growing up and listening to professional orchestras and you know especially but herseth in chicago and you know going to northwestern and hearing these great players around me and um i had this sort of vision of in my head of what 
needed to happen in an audition in order to win a job. And that wasn't necessarily the case in, in what I was hearing. And so that was, I just immediately sort of took a little bit of the pressure off and realized that I could not play. No one is perfect. And I realized that I didn't have to try to play perfectly. And I think that was sort of a hurdle that I had to get over was to try to play perfectly. There's no such thing. And I think I sort of translated that into playing as musically as I possibly could. And that is what I try to do in, in the audition situation and to sort of create as much contrast and as much soulful playing as I could to get the attention of, of whoever was listening instead of trying to play note perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. But it's interesting. I, I don't mean but as in like you're wrong. It's just interesting because how do we... I think sometimes when I've gone to auditions or other people have gone to auditions and we feel that we have played very soulful and we don't make it very far. It's, I wonder, it's, it's hard to chalk it up. Basically it's hard to continually, like we hear this all the time from people who have been successful, especially in big jobs that I feel that the thing that made me successful is playing musically. And then we go in there and we do that and it doesn't work out. And it's, it becomes harder and harder to believe that this is a reality of what auditions are. Can you speak to that at all? Other than like your own experience, but I mean, you've probably been on audition committees a few times at this point. Like, can you just speak to any of this, basically this idea of it is actually true and we, it's just, we have to keep fighting or whatever, you know, whatever you have to say about it. Um, We'll definitely keep fighting. (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I, I've I've gotten many opportunities to sit on the other side of the of the screen listening, and you know I can only speak for myself, but I'm always listening for something interesting, uh, and uh, I'll never forget um, Phil Myers, uh, the now retired principal horn of the New York Philharmonic, uh, during one audition committee, one audition panel that we were sitting on together. He said there are two types of people who come into an audition. There's the people who try not to do something. They try not to mess up. They try, they try not to miss notes. Uh, and then there are the people who try to do something. The people who try to make music, who try to communicate to the audience. Those are always the types of people who are more successful. And I, I totally agree with that. And mm-hmm. if you go in there d- defensively, um, you're not going to be as successful as if you go in there offensively with a plan in mind. Yeah. Do you think there's even like a sort of a, un, like a felt vibe? Like even if somebody played exactly the same, if they go in there defensively versus offensively, even if they hypothetically played just as in tune, just as many right notes, that there might even be just a felt difference about the presentation? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you want to hear someone go in and just lay it down and say, this is exactly how I want to play it. This is exactly how it should go. And you want to leave all sense of doubt out of the room. And that's not to say that you, the player, are not feeling this sense of doubt inside your head, but your goal is to sort of mask that as much as you can by trying to play offensively and, and give a, a, an overall presentation of what you want to play. Yeah. Uh, I like this discussion on auditions. I kind of want to keep going. Um, <laughs> and my, I, I took the audition for Chicago that uh, Esteban won. Hmm. 
And um, I felt like I played well. I sort of tried this version of preparation that I was really excited about. I felt like even though it didn't work out, I was really glad I did it, right? Kind of the best version of what can come from an audition where you don't advance out of the prelims. And one of the things I really struggled with, even if I felt totally prepared and I knew every single excerpt, was I still felt this adrenaline of not like playing defensively, but you know, I care. I just, I care very deeply. I really would like to win this audition because I'm here in the first place. Um, if you've experienced those kinds of feelings, what things do you feel like have been helpful? Or if you are kind of a freak and you haven't, but you've heard other people say things, just kind of what's your, um, your thoughts on combating the specific type of nerves that happen when you care, not like being unprepared, but it's like, I'm totally prepared. And yet I still feel adrenaline. Like what's besides like beta blockers, which can be effective, do you have any other tips or ideas? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I find that the, the more I fight the nerves, the worse they get. Um, so I have to first just like mentally accept the fact that I will get nervous. Um, and I feel, I, I try to take one excerpt at a time sometimes one lick at a time, sometimes one note at a time. If I think too broad of a picture, too big of a picture, then I get overwhelmed. Um, and to me, I don't know where I picked this up, but sometimes if I'm worried about something, just a simple statement in my head of, I got this, is enough to make me feel the slightest sense of even false confidence. Sure. Um, but just that sort of positivity rather than negativity uh, I think helps me a little bit. And I do that on the job too. If I'm worried about some kind of lick that's coming up in, in, in a piece that we're playing and it's coming out right before I play, I say, I got this. And then I'd say 90% of the time, it's a whole <laughs> lot better than, uh, than it had gone in the past. So, um, but also I, I remember, I, I remember also sitting next to Phil and hearing him sing along during concerts while we're not playing sometimes. And I could hear him. And I asked him about it one day. He said, oh, yeah, well, sometimes I get nervous and, and I, I sing along to the music to sort of bring me back into the music making part of what we do instead of thinking about all of the other things that mm. we tend to think about as, as trumpet players or, or instrumentalists of what could go wrong rather than just embracing the music and, and investing in the music making part of it. Yeah, do you find that I feel like I know what you're going to say, but I would like to hear you say it. Do you find that thinking musically helps technical things or do you still feel like there's a level of sort of knowledge of production that you have to be able to acquire before you unlock this ability to think purely musically and have the playing follow it? I think it goes both ways. Um, I think obviously you have to work on the, on the technique and the technical part in the practice room, but there's a level of trust that you have to have in the performance. And if you don't trust yourself, you're definitely not gonna be as successful. Um, and once you can trust yourself, you can let go and trust that the work you've done in the practice room will carry you through. And that's when you can really invest in the music making and, and take it to that next level. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that, I think it's, it's uh, um, uh, uh, Coach Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick? No. Yeah, at Northwestern. At Northwestern. At Northwestern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's been so long since there's been sports. I my my brain is, <laughs> yeah. is, is fried on that on that end. But um, 
Um, no, Pat Fitzgerald. There it is. Pat Fitzgerald. Yeah. See, um, you had me fooled. And I- <laughs> <laughs> um, he, I've seen him, I'm pretty sure, hold up a sign before games start that says, trust yourself. And every player, before they get on the field, they tap the sign. And that resonated with me. Uh, and it's sort of the same with, with music making and performance. You have to trust yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's, yeah, the way I think about it quickly is just basically we work on all the intonation and we work on the rhythm and we work on the style and all the articulation. And then, But at some point, I think we believe that because we're thinking about the intonation, that's why we play in tune. And so at some point, we sort of have to make this leap of, I trust that if I stop thinking about the intonation and I start thinking about the music, that I will still play in tune. And then I will also be able to unlock the musicality. And that jump for me is very scary because we're leaving what we know and embracing the next step of our development as musicians, which is can be somewhat underdeveloped just because we spend so much time doing the other side. So, right. The risk reward factor is, is key. I think if you do, if you don't take risks to try to get over that scary hump, like you're talking about, it's not going to necessarily reward you in the end, yeah. but it's like, it's like, you know, I was a soccer player. It's like taking a penalty kick. Like you've practiced them so many times and this is a favorite thing to practice. Cause it's just funny. You just get to shoot from a close distance and it's one-on-one with a goalie, but in the moment, in the game, when you get up there and you take a penalty kick, the mind games are going crazy. If the second you start doubting yourself, you're going to kick it over the bar. Mm. You're going to miss or you're going to hit it right at the goalie. And so you have to, again, just trust yourself. And even if it's a false sense of confidence, you've got to bring it somehow. Yeah. Awesome. So let's apply that to your uh, audition. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, okay. How I, I just want to get a, a sense of a picture. So you were in, you won Naples shortly before you graduated and then you were there the next year and then did the New York Philharmonic job. What the audition was that during the, your first year in Naples? Yeah. So, so the, the, so I had the audition for Naples was in May of 2007. Uh, I, went down to Naples, took the audition, had won it, came back, graduated, went to Tanglewood that summer, and then came back from Tanglewood, moved my stuff out of the house I was living in, um, recorded the prelim tape for the New York Philharmonic in Lutkin um, during, in like the beginning of September, right before I, I drove down to Naples to, to move there. So, um, that, the audition for, for New York was um, everybody had to send in a, a tape as the preliminary round, um, which is sort of unusual these days for um, professional auditions, I think, mm-hmm. um, at least orchestral auditions, I guess. But um, I almost didn't send the tape because I didn't think it was good enough. <laughs> and I remember sitting in my parents' house, like messing around with the uploading it onto the CD. And I was like, all right, I was like, fine. I'll just, I'll send it. I, I remember like having this big mental um, fight in my head about it, but I sent it off. I drove down to Naples, never thought about it. And then um, there were a couple other auditions happening at the same time. There was an audition for the Atlanta symphony, uh, Boston symphony audition that I was going to also, I think in September, October. And I believe I was in, Atlanta when I got a call from New York saying my tape had advanced to the semifinal round. 
So I, we had a live semifinal round. I think there were maybe nine of us um, over two different days. And um, I played a semifinal round and then they came and got me afterwards and told me that they wanted to hear me play now duets with Phil as part of the second part of the semifinal round, still behind the screen. So um, Phil came out and, and he was sitting there as I came out on stage. And I, so like, <laughs> like I said, I hadn't seen him since I had a lesson with him uh, when I was deciding where to go to, to, to college. So um, he luckily did not bring that up at the time. And um, I don't think he really <laughs> remembered it. He, you know, but um, so he introduced himself and I introduced myself and he said, Oh, where, where are you right now? I said, Oh, I, I play in the Naples Philharmonic in Florida. And he said, Oh, you want to trade places? <laughs> so he was, it, he was so nice and like welcoming and trying to make me feel at ease, which I appreciated. Um, and we played some duets, um, some, some excerpts, I think together. Um, and then the final rounds, I guess they, they liked me enough to advance me to the final rounds, which was a couple days later. And at this point, I started getting like kind of freaked out in my head. I was like, I'm in New York City. I'm looking around at all these tall buildings. Like, can I actually live here? What is this? And I yeah. you know, immediately shut that down. And I was like, just take one thing at a time. So I showed up for the final round. It was between me and Mike Deshaun, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, we... I, I, we, there were three sort of segments to the final round. The first was the solo, which was Oliver's birthday. Um, <laughs> Phil, Phil loves that piece. <laughs> uh, so no, hu no Hummel, no Hyde, no Tomasi, like <laughs> Oliver's birthday. birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember just going on stage and totally freaking out. No screen at this point, seeing, you know, all of the members of the New York Philharmonic Brass Section, yeah. plus Lauren Mazel sitting there. And I just, I thought I was done after the solo. I played so poorly. Wow. Uh, and so uh, then they called me back and I played solo excerpts um, on stage. Then called me back and played um, more stuff with, with Phil. And I remember sitting in the personnel off office with Mike Deshaun, um not feeling very confident at all. Uh, and... Yeah. So we, we, and you know, we, we had known each other a little bit. We were buddies. Um, and um, Phil Smith comes, comes walking in and he goes, well, the decision is there is no decision. Uh, we would like to have you both back for a trial week. And I said, okay. And so, so to back up a little bit, I didn't realize until three days maybe before the audition, um, before the live semifinal round that I had to that rotary trumpet was required. And <laughs> I didn't have, I did not have a rotary trumpet at the time. And I, only one I had access to was um, Jim Stevenson's old rotary trumpet, uh, which I believe he may have left in Naples on purpose because that <laughs> thing did not play very well at all. <laughs> Uh, and so I remember the case didn't have a handle, like I had to lug it with me on the plane. And so I was sort of freaking out, like trying to cram it in. And I, rotary playing was never one of my strong suits. And I wish I had done more of that in college, um, just to sort of try to figure that beast out. 
Um, so I, I had this terrible instrument with me. It was just the only thing I had. And I on on stage trying to play through Schumann II and Brahms II and, you know, Bruckner with, with Phil on rotary trumpet, I was struggling. And, and he could tell and I could tell. And I was trying to play it off like everything is cool. Yeah. Um, and so Phil comes in and he's sort of, you know, giving us a little bit of feedback and, and commentary for what he wants to hear as we go forward through this process. And, and one of the things he said to me, he goes, Ethan, quite frankly, your rotary playing stinks. <laughs> That's like a curse for Phil, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> in, in Phil Smith's, you know, very candid way of speaking. Um, and so I said, I know, I know. And so the, the trial week came I want to say two, maybe a month later, six weeks, something like that. Um, it was one of the only weeks that Mazel was able to conduct. And um, so we both actually came for the same trial week for the same position. So um, very strange process. Yeah. They, they um, had us both sit in on all of the rehearsals. So while one of us was playing in the section, the other one was sitting directly behind, um, which uh, it was, it was, you know, super strange. I was yeah. trying to just like, you know, get it out of my mind. Um, yeah, seriously. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was what it was. And I, I understand why they did it. Um, but uh, it was, it was bizarre. And um, so, you know, we would sort of take turns, like, coming in and out of the section during the rehearsals. And then the concerts, like, one, one of the concerts, I played the first half, Mike played the second half. The other concert, we switched. And mm -hmm. then there was another concert where I think Phil just randomly assigned us. I don't know. Um, I think during that week, we did some brass quintet playing, too. But the, the orchestra rep that week was nothing big. I think we did Blue Danube. We did a Glazunov violin concerto. And, of course, a Mendelssohn symphony on rotary trumpet. Nice. So um, I borrowed an instrument. Um, at that point, I think I borrowed it either from Charlie or from Bruce, my teacher from high school. And um, luckily I had a slightly better instrument with me. And um, so I sort of, I guess, fooled them enough into being able to play rotary trumpet. And uh, so at the end of that week, they had me come back for another trial week after that. Um, so I came back uh, probably about a month later, I would say. And at this point, Mazel, he was not conducting. I think they just wanted to get the process done, but we did Shasti 4, which was super fun. Nice. Um, that was like the first time that I could like really contribute, I thought, in like, you know, a, a brass kind of way. Um, and the feedback I got during that week was maybe he's not playing loud enough. And I was like, really? Like, I feel like I'm playing so loud. <laughs> and Phil was like, well, maybe that's a good thing because it means he's blending in the section. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of unison licks in that, in that at the beginning of the symphony, that big opening line, which is super fun to play. Um, but I also played a, a kid's concert. Um, so it was like a dream but also a nightmare in a way because right. i was just trying to survive <laughs> um, and i i was trying to downplay the whole the whole thing and just just play 
Um, I think it helped tremendously to have Matt there. Uh, it was almost like we were in back in school kind of. So I was oh, trying yeah. to, I was trying to sort of treat it like the, like I would, like we were in school and just kind of having fun. Um, and I, and I told myself, I was like, whatever happens, happens. I get the chance to sit in this brass section and play in this hall. And it was, it was a great experience. And so right before the, the last concert, um, I got a, an invitation into the personnel office and they all, uh, told me that I had been offered the job. So that's awesome. It was a process, but it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was great. Yeah, one of the things about my Chicago audition, I don't think it got to me. I just think I sort of had this awareness of it is that on the other side of this screen is everybody that I listened to to mm -hmm. like gain inspiration about my instrument. Yeah. And so I imagine just the next step of being able to play with these people that we've listened to and that are part of like even probably part of your approach, you know, has got to be so such a cool experience. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for kind of going through all of it. Um, it, why do you feel like you have, we talked about this a little bit. I don't know how to phrase this question properly, but you know, what do you think drew you to want to work the amount that you needed to work to be able to be successful in like an orchestral career, you know, auditioning. And then of course, through getting tenure, like, what do you think draws you to playing in an orchestra as a trumpet player? Um, you know, kind of like, what's your why, so to speak? As I said, I, I was a soccer player and I, I've always gravitated towards this sort of team aspect, the team sport mm -hmm. part of it. Um, I enjoy contributing. I enjoy sort of feeding off of other people's energies and skill sets. And I never, ironically, like in, in school, right, we always wanted to win the, the pool auditions, the placement auditions, so that we could play the first parts and play the solo parts and do the best. Um, no one ever wanted to finish second in an audition, so they would play the second part, you know what I mean? Um, and so I had this sort of mindset of, and, and Phil told me later on too, Phil Smith, he said in one of his concerns during, in my audition process was that I was too much of a principal player and not enough of a section player. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, I recently listened back to my audition tape, which was a fascinating experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and I totally see what he's talking about. I mean, I, I was just like letting loose as, as much as I, I could. And I was, it was just sort of this, like, I was pretending to be this fearless trumpet player, even though maybe I wasn't. Um, but um, I always enjoyed playing in the section more than I did, um, playing, playing the solo parts. And I'm fortunate, I think, uh, that both of my jobs have been second trumpet jobs. And I, I much prefer to sort of share the spotlight than step into it on my own. If you asked me to step in front of the orchestra and play a concerto, it would be so far out of my element right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I feel most at home in the back of the orchestra in the section where I can contribute along with everybody else to to create this sort of um, group effort project. Yeah, because like I was saying, I've struggled with sort of realizing that I did it because I thought it was a way for people 
to like basically know who I was, you know, mm. oh, he's in the New York Philharmonic. Like what's, you know, let's, we got to talk to that guy, you know? <laughs> and so it's interesting to um, just have grown up a lot since then. And to really start asking those questions, because then when I ask someone who really feels like it's inspiring basically to me to have someone be like, I feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, for me, it's inspiring. And I think that's ideally how people, everybody should feel in an orchestra. I'm doing exactly the thing like that I want and I should be doing. And um, I have a few more questions uh, that are kind of specific to you, not just to winning a job, but to being successful like early, you know, did you, did you have any struggles going from essentially I'm in school as an undergrad to I'm in the New York Philharmonic, like where I would not have been ready. I remember wanting that and then realizing if that would have happened, I would have been fired instantly because I just was an <laughs> idiot. You know what I mean? I wasn't ready emotionally, let alone probably as a player. So how do you bridge that gap where there's usually a lot of growth that would need to happen to be successful? Like, unless you were sort of already that way, but like, what do you feel like if you had any struggles of acclimating to this basically the best or one of the best orchestras in the world? Like, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing for me was the self-doubt. Like, as we've talked about a lot through this, through this interview, it's um, to this day, if, there, if something doesn't sound right, I just automatically assume it's my fault. <laughs> um, and that I have to sort of get that out of my head. I mean, you know, from day one of sitting uh, on that stage with those people, with those players, I never really thought I belonged. I was like, what am I doing here? I don't belong. This is crazy. Is this a dream? What's happening? Um, and I had to just, again, like put my head down and just play. Some of the best advice I've ever gotten was show up, shut up, save up. Mm. And that has still been resonating through my head throughout this, this my whole career. But um, it just, it was... It's so simple, but it makes such a huge, huge difference. You know, um, be respectful. Um, you know, it, 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 sh it should go without saying, but sometimes sure. uh, it needs a repeating. Right. Um, but I think my, my experience in, in civic also, while I was in school, really helped bridge the gap between student and professional. Um, that was... Uh, very much a professional qual uh, caliber quality. Um, and, you know, Cliff was such a great mentor in the sense that he treated us like professionals, but with a little bit of a kick to the student vibe, you know? Um, so he's like, this is what you need to know. And this is how you need to, this is how you need to get there. Yeah. And um, he was, he was very tough and very sort of, um, encouraging i guess at the same time and that i feel like i really learned a lot about how to play in an orchestra from that experience too yeah i think to myself i really want to be in the new york philharmonic i really want to be in the chicago symphony and i think it, you, what you just said made made me feel like I feel like I would want that all the way up until the point where i would actually be sitting there and be like oh my god i got what i asked for oh my God, what is going on? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like this thing that I've just convinced myself that would be the best thing on the planet. If it, when it becomes reality, then you have to like, okay, now I have to actually 
produce. I have to be this person. Can I be this person that I really wanted to be? And um, I would be curious if you'd kind of, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit. I think that we idolize positions in these big orchestras because we just think that it must be the good life. And I imagine there's a lot about it that's great, but um, I imagine you guys work like crazy. Well, maybe not right now, obviously, but <laughs> generally speaking, when things are normal, you guys work like crazy. And I would be curious if you kind of like take us into what an average week looks like and in terms of preparation, in terms of rehearsal. So we kind of get a big picture of what it is to actually be a member of one of these uh, sort of institutional organizations in our country. Yeah. Um, we, during a typical week, we'll have probably three, four, sometimes five rehearsals and three, four, sometimes five concerts um, per week on, on the same repertoire. And then the next week, it's the same, but different. So different repertoire every week. I think the, one of the most challenging things is to just keep up with all the, all the repertoire. And at this point, this is the end of my 12th season in the New York Philharmonic, which is crazy to me to think about that. But um, I have had the opportunity now, because we play so much repertoire, to have had experience with a lot of it. So that's, that's good now for me going forward. Um, but I remember the early days of, you know, big rep after big rep, just trying to keep up was, was challenging. My first week, my first couple of weeks on the job was, um, my very first rehearsal as a member after the trial weeks was Mahler 9. That same week we did, uh, a one-off in Carnegie playing Mazel's arrangement of the ring without words. So it was all the ring highlights. Um, and the next week I think was Bruckner 8. Um, my first tour was a couple months later. We went to, we did like the, the summer festival tour in Europe and we did Miraculous Mandarin, huge second trumpet par. We did Rite of Spring. We did Check Four. Um, so it was just like all of this big stuff happening at once. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it I, you have to sort of stay treading water with your head above the water and, and, stay, I think staying balanced mentally and physically are, is key. Um, I think it was Herseth who said, when you play Mahler on the job, you go home and play Mozart. If you play Mozart on the job, you go home and play Mahler. Um, but also to me, I, you know, again, I don't think I have what it takes to be a principal trumpet in a big orchestra or even just a principal trumpet in general anymore. Um, <laughs> but I, I see what, what you guys go, go through. Um, in terms of the, the maintenance and the upkeep and the, the, the drive and not to say I don't have any of that, but um, it's to me, I, I try to stay as balanced as possible in all senses. Yeah, this is great. I, especially the, the work, we don't have that kind of workload, you know, I mean, yeah. every once in a while on a masterworks week, we will have a seven or an maybe, maybe an eight service week. I think I've had like two, nine service weeks in my six years here, you know? So it's different for me. I have the time to start a podcast. I have these other, <laughs> these other pursuits, but how do you be with a workload like that? And you're constantly trying to stay on top of the repertoire. How do you be a person on top of that, you know, how do you invest in other areas of your life that are going to fill you up and allow you to be um, sort of a gracious and not just angry person because your whole life is surrounded by this one thing, you know? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has any tips, let me know. 
but no, I mean, it really makes you cherish your free time. Um, and so you can sort of do what you, what you would like to do in that time. But, um, there, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of it once we're like in full swing and in full season mode. But so what is the coronavirus time? Like, what has this been for you to have time? What is, what kinds of things have you been doing to occupy your, your time? Um, it sort of goes in waves. <laughs> um, at the beginning, I didn't really know. I was still trying to process everything. Um, we had, we were about, you know, they, they canceled sort of everything. We had just played a morning dress rehearsal of Petrushka. And I was like, man, this is sounding so good. Everything like, and, and Gergiev was on the podium. Like it was, it was one of those like scary, but also like pretty cool moments. And, and Chris sounded amazing. And we were like, everything was just going great. And, uh, in terms of like my playing, everybody else was like in the zone, you know, we were in full, full on mode. And then we sort of knew it was coming. We were like, why are we here? We're not going to play at concerts. But yeah. Um, so they, they ended up canceling everything then. And I, it took me a couple of weeks to sort of just process everything. Um, didn't touch the horn for a while. <laughs> uh, I was like, what for? Like, I don't know. You know we're not going to go back to work anytime soon. Um, and then I started playing these like nightly concerts on my rooftop. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, talk to you about this yeah yeah so this, this was um it's it started because there was like when things started to get really bad in new york city um i went up on the roof and you know people started applauding for the for the frontline workers um at seven o'clock every night and so i went up there one night with my with my horn and i played taps and that sort of started this whole 57 night in a row ritual where I, every night I played a different tune. And the more I played, the more people gathered on their balconies across the way. And I live on a, um, in, a, in a building. It's, there's 12 stories to the building. And there's like this space, but there are, are a bunch of different buildings around. So um, my sound, I guess, carried fairly far to, a, you know, in a couple block radius. And I got a bigger and bigger audience and I got all these messages from people on social media who found out it was me. Um, and it was really cool to sort of give the community something to look forward to and communicate, use music to heal. I mean, it was, everyone was just so, so dark and depressed during that time and still now, of course, too. But um, that was the height of, of things in New York City um, and it was a nice way to bring people together that I had discovered sort of by accident. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I was going to ask you what prompted starting that. Cause it's, to me, it's a really beautiful version of like music can heal. And this we're members of a community. We're not just these people that go on a stage and we play and people look at us and then they leave, but we are integrated. We are feeling the same things that everybody else is feeling. And, I thought it was such a cool way. It's such a simple thing to do. And oftentimes I've been learning like this really the simple act or these simple acts of reaching out, finding a way, whether it's through our instrument or just support that can mean so much to people who are struggling and who are, are dealing. And so I thought that was, yeah, that was so cool. It was great. And it, it gave me structure too. I mean, it gave me something to, 
to put my energies toward instead of just sulking around on the couch all day, <laughs> um, which I'm sure many of us are continuing to do, which is totally fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I would spend a bunch of time researching different songs, what to play, how to play them. Um, so I tried to keep it appropriate for the times and yeah. sort of with, with uplifting messages or something that people could recognize and grasp onto. Yeah, I think. That's a one of it's like a really beautiful thing to come out of. I don't have anything to do, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what else? I mean, what other things are of interest to you um, as like just as a person? You know, what I mean, other than the trumpet, I mean, like you say you don't have much free time, but I'm imagining there are other things that are um, you, hobbies or whatever. What kind of other stuff makes you tick? I miss traveling. Honestly, um, you know, New York City is great, but it's important to be able to get out in order to enjoy it, sure. <laughs> um, which is tough these days. But um, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I, I, I'm into photography a little bit. Um, I've got a dog that keeps me busy. So she's been coming in and out of the room. Yeah. But, uh, I just heard my cat going crazy out there a second ago. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, different things, I guess. And then you and Matthias have time to hang out and spend time together now too. Like what's, yeah, it, what's it like for him? Because I imagine there's a lot of traveling normally for him. And um, so what is that? What, how has your relationship been affected by having more time? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you're used to seeing each other all the time or if it's kind of like a we're in and out type situation. But um, for my relationship with my wife has significantly been impacted in sort of a really good, but also like a really weird like we're together all the time and we're, we're around our kids all the time. And now we have to kind of figure out this vibe of like, normally we get space and now we don't. So like, <laughs> what, what, like kind of what's been uh, the coronavirus's effect on your relationship? Um, yeah. I mean, this is by far the longest period of time that we've spent together consecutively. Um, it's for the most part been good. I mean, of course we have our ups and downs like everybody, but sure. uh Emotionally, this is a really tough time for for everybody. Um, and for him, you know, he's lost a ton of work. Um, usually he's traveling more than half the year uh, conducting. Uh, and he's got a job in Paris that he misses terribly. Um, and they're, they're still doing some stuff. And he was, he, he's trying to, to get over there for, for something, but it's just not possible right now. Um, so the traveling for him, it's been good to have him around, obviously, but it's been good to have him for him not to have to pack a, pack a suitcase and run out the door every other day or every couple of weeks or whatever. Um, so it's nice to have this sort of grounded time together and to sort of be able to be together, but it is also straining on the financial part of it and the professional part of it who knows how we're going to get out of this if we are i mean assuming we are but yeah so yeah, yeah. the loss guys, of work has been really tough well and then you guys are you already know it's not till 2021 at the soonest with the philharmonic so right i mean this is a weird question do you feel like that sucks, but it makes sense? Or do you have like anger that, that it, they, there's this blanket statement? Like what is your, I mean, cause every orchestra is handling this differently. Obviously Nashville is completely canceled for the year. 
I know San Francisco, I think, is 2021. Uh, we're supposed to start in September, the end of September, but like Alabama, I don't know if you know this, but people had COVID parties in Alabama. Yeah, I've uh, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's what that's the reality here. And so like I don't know if we'll even feel safe if we're supposed to go back in September. So it's obviously it's a big mess, but like what, how are you feeling right now knowing the reality for sure that it's 2021 at the soonest? I don't, it's out of my hands. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all about you know, government regulations and, and all that stuff. And I understand, you know, they, the organizations have to do what they have to do. Um, but there's no sense in getting angry about it. What does that solve? Um, uh, it's just a matter of waiting this out and hoping we can be smart and come together once this whole thing passes. So. Yeah. Um, I have another direction I want to take this, but I want to talk about the, you've been posting a lot about the 50th anniversary of the Pride March in New York City, right? A little bit, I guess. Yeah, well, not a bunch, but you've posted some pictures and I've seen them. So I guess that's more, <laughs> that's more accurate. Uh, I'm just curious, like, what is it? I mean, 50 years ago, in terms of like gay rights, we were in a completely different position, right? So what is it like to be in a place like New York City that has for 50 years been celebrating, um, you know, people with different sexual preferences than the normal heterosexual, you know, like what is that like to feel that kind of support or is it a reflection of what it's actually like on a day-to-day basis for you? I mean, obviously there's still a lot of work to do, right? Um, But uh, it's inspiring. I mean, people live their lives um, how they want to live them. for the, I mean, New York is a very special place uh, in that regard, I guess. But um, right now, everything's sort of up in the air. Uh, it's, a, it's a really difficult time for a lot of people. And it's, it's great that we've um, had people in the past that have really fought for things. And it's great that now people are fighting for things. Um, so I hope that the fight continues. But Yeah. So this brings me to this question. Like we've painted this picture of like, you know, it's awesome to be in an orchestra and it's awesome to have like the level of privilege that can come from that. Um, But like now that things are crazy, how do we like reconcile the importance of what we do in a world that is like kind of blowing up, right? You know what I mean? To me, it personally feels like it's not important. It just seems like there's so many other things to fix that like, I'm not really concerned with like my, I mean, it's my job, it's my livelihood, but it just seems like playing in an orchestra is like a fringe cultural benefit that is like sort of, we should put to the side almost, you know, but I know that's not true for a lot of people. So being sort of in the midst of all of this kind of stuff, like how do we say that what we do, how do we continue to bring in relevance of what we do in the midst of all this insane stuff that's going on? I mean, Playing on my roof had, has really brought a lot of perspective, I think. Um, like I said, I had so many messages from people I had never met, even people in my building um, who heard the trumpet playing, um, people across the street. I mean, you know, we, in New York, we live literally on top of each other. And in normal circumstances, you would just because of, I don't, I don't know why, but we would just go past each other and maybe a a brief greeting, but that's it. You would never get to know the people who you are basically sharing all this space with, um, or this little tiny box with. Um, And what 
playing music when there is no music has, has taught me is that people really do crave that. And um, especially in a place like New York where they're used to being able to go to Broadway to, um, to see the ballet, to see the, the Met, the opera, there's music and culture everywhere. And all of a sudden everything's shut down and went from, you know, a hundred miles an hour to zero. Right. And even just going a tiny bit in, in that direction helps give that somewhat sense of, I don't want to say normalcy, but, um, it, it realize, makes people realize what they are missing. And I think that's really important to communicate to whoever needs to hear it. But um, music is, is important. You know, what would movies be without music? Right. Um, there, music plays a huge role in a lot of people's lives if they realize it or not. Yeah, I totally agree. I used to, I haven't asked this question in a while, but I used to ask all the people I interviewed, why do you think music is relevant in our, in our especially orchestral music? Because it seems like other forms of music, you can create this insane, lavish lifestyle while we are like the top of our field or, you know, making a fraction of that in terms of money, obviously. Yeah. And so, um, but I think, yeah, we all sort of have this understanding that there is a purpose beyond the initial we're doing this, we're playing, there's like an actual heal it, like a healing property. That yeah. Can be. Music, music brings people together. And, and I've like neighbors have specifically reached out to me and say, thank you for what you're doing. I want to take you to dinner once we can actually go to dinner. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a neighbor too, who would, they, they, they would, she lives in the building next door and from her window, she would record my playing every night. And, and she said it was the thing she looked forward to all day. And it, like they would play games, like trying to guess what the song was that I was playing. And, um, you know, they would make requests and I would try to honor some of them. Um, and we would communicate on social media and I had never met the person. And then the other day, I was at the liquor store, shocker, um, <laughs> and I walk in and there is my neighbor who we had been communicating with and we had never met and we immediately recognized each other even through the masks. Sure. And I, we, I just like, oh my God, hello. Yeah. And it was like this like magical sort of moment of connection um, that started, what, three months ago. And uh, we we'd never met each other, but there was a strong connection that was brought through music. Yeah, and that's re that's really cool. Why'd you stop? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for uh, the main reason, I think is uh, I stopped right when the protests were heating up in in New yeah. York, and I it felt silly to me to to try to not necessarily compete, but um, I wanted to sort of make way for something else to resonate. Um, and take a step back that way. Um, so I, I think it was, it was good timing. Um, but, uh, it was, I'm glad that I, I, I stepped back when I did. I think that was, yeah. that was good. That's, that's awesome. I just, I think it's, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts right now. I think the one I'll <laughs> stick with is I just think it's so interesting to really boil down what we do to it's like, sort of essence, which is communication, right? It's like you said, it's bringing people together. And I think sometimes we get, I personally have seen people get lost in 
well, I have to have this, or I got to do this, or it needs to be this way, or else I'm not going to be okay. And it just seems like when we focus on the people that we're trying to either connect or we're doing our best to provide with an experience, it seems like it often fills us back up, which then we can continue. Like it, it kind of is this circular type thing. I'm filling you up and then you fill me up, especially if we have actual communication with the people that Absolutely. we're serving. Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I have to ask you one more thing that every trumpet player in the world is going to want to know. <laughs> but like, what's it? What was it like to play with Phil? What's it like to play? I mean, just all of those brass players are incredible. But if we were to focus on like Phil and Chris, you know, like what what kinds of things do you feel like you've learned? They could be trumpet related things. They could be leadership things. Like kind of just what's the vibe? You know what I mean? Every, everybody's going to want to know. Um. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, oh, what's the, di- what's the biggest difference between, uh, you know, playing with Phil and playing with Chris? And I honestly can only think of similarities. Yeah. Um, they, they, they both are very quiet leaders, which I appreciate tremendously. Um, you know, they lead by example and they lead with their playing, um, but they're also amazing listeners and they, you know, they will adjust. Uh, we all have to adjust. Like I said, it's a team effort. Um, but the the singing quality that they both have in their playing has been inspirational to me uh, in terms of my own playing, but my own listening and, and what I want to emulate myself. It, they make my job easier. And if you ask them, they might say that I make their job easier, but they're probably just being nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's true. I mean, it, it, if they lay it down like that, then there's only one way for me to fit right in. And it just feels very, very natural. Yeah. Um, when, Phil, when Phil told me he was retiring, after I got, got over like the initial shock of it, um, I, the, there was like a person who immediately jumped into my head, uh, who like, who is going to take over for Phil Smith. Right. And, and Chris was, was one person that came to mind and I was like, well, he's rooted in Chicago. There's no way we're going to get him. And I am still counting my, my lucky stars that he, we somehow lured him over, but um, it's been, it's been a great fit for not only me, I think, but for everybody. And, their their human level also the way they um not only lead but interact with with everybody and they don't just leave the trumpet section they leave the brass section they leave the orchestra sometimes um they are both exceptional humans with with very real values which i think is is important yeah that's awesome I, that's a beautiful <laughs> and it trans it translates into their playing too i think yeah okay I have literally one more, I promise. <laughs> this is it. I mean, I could ask you questions all day long, but maybe we'll just save it for a different podcast episode. Um, you, So you know how Barbara works, right? She has like her names of people that she's like comparing you against so that it motivates you to work harder. Well, you were that for me. Your name came up all the time in my <laughs> lessons, right? And she would tell me like, well, Ethan made good progress and then he started recording himself and then he made like a lot of progress (laughs) and so the one story i want to corroborate i want to figure out if it's true because i've heard these stories about how you got to this point in your playing where 
everything was like solid rock solid and then she's like you just need or maybe charlie said you need a sound to die for and so the story is is that barbara would just read a magazine and in, in her lesson and you would play and as soon as you could get her to not pay attention to her magazine she'd be like that you got the sound is there a truth to that yeah absolutely ridiculous <laughs> i mean it, it, it's I, I won't i won't say who or where but that happens in professional auditions too where the committee and, and they've been cracked down uh on they're cracking down a little bit on on that but behind the screen back in the old days let's say people would be on their computers reading a magazine reading mm. a book and it would take they wouldn't vote for you to advance unless they got you to look up from what they were doing mm. Um, and I've witnessed that myself, but, um, it, it yeah, I mean, interesting. Yeah. That, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been, anyway, like I said, it's been, for me, it's been very awesome to be able to interview you because there's just been, I don't know, a, 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 like I said, an admiration or you've been a source of inspiration for me for a long time, just in certainly the. Uh, the success or the achievement, especially at a young age, but then to have actually have met you and just be like, this guy's just a normal guy. It's awesome. Like <laughs> I can talk to him. I don't feel like I'm lower or below. And I think the more times we meet our heroes and it's, we, they are the people we hope they were, that they would be, I think the better. And so I appreciate you being willing to chat with me for a while today. My, my pleasure. It's, it's been an honor. I have to yeah. say. Thanks. If somebody has heard this and they thought, oh my gosh, Ethan, his words changed my life and they want to tell you that, is there a way that they can get a hold of you or would you not want them to do that? Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> Just a way um, to say, how would they get in touch with you if they were trying to do so? Um, yeah, uh, you can send me an email. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, my email is just ebensdorf at mac.com. Cool. Uh, yeah. So um, that's a that's a very common thing people do at the end of podcasts. But like, <laughs> I'm so used to it now. But I guess, um, yeah, it's it's like a, a whole different life, a whole different world. My life has taken on that. I've like sort of like in the thing now. You know, what I mean, like doing the interviews and stuff. But you're a pro. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about <laughs> pro, but I've gotten better. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Um, most of you listening know that if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so at that's not spit.com. Send me a message on the contact page or find me at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something, if you laughed, if you cried, if you had any emotion whatsoever, if you would leave a review and a rating on iTunes, I would appreciate that and also share it on social media so other people can find it. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Bye.